Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Wati Grossman, gave up a law career to pursue her love for fashion, a decision met with skepticism by her family and friends. As a young wife leaving her native Australia behind to settle in the U.S., she turned her passion into a career, one that continues to be reshaped and refined to this day, finding new meaning and purpose in an industry that is ever-evolving. Please welcome Wati Grossman. Welcome, Wati. I basically have one question I ask to start the conversation off. And the question is, was there an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? I would say that the instigating event that took me in a different direction in my young adult life that sort of impacted my path and kind of shifted my mindset would have to be when my husband and I moved from Sydney to the US. We'd just gotten married and were living in Sydney and um, had decided basically mutually that we would have to move to the US and settle there because, you know, there was the issue of homesickness and just wanting to really start afresh. And so That was the time when I had to ask myself, what am I going to do? What will be my profession, my vocation? It was a perfect time to change direction. So you'll remember, Juliana, that in the late 80s and 90s, it wasn't common for people to change careers. So breaking free of those generational and cultural expectations in the early 90s, it might not seem like a big deal today because today lots of people are multi-hyphenates, you know, doing this and this and with that side hustle. But Back in the day, we had to choose our path and we had to decide. So I did graduate from law school. I did practice as a lawyer, but I was walking away from that. I had decided that I was just going to, you know, reinvent myself. And how many years were you in the profession? I actually wasn't in the profession for long. I practiced going into my second year and I already knew that it wasn't for me. Walking away from that was a big no-no because I got skepticism and pushback from my mother And my dad had just passed away. His death also compounded to make me realize life's too short and I need to find a different path. I need to think about what I really want to do with my life. There was a huge collective gasp from my larger family for choosing a non-traditional career path when I started talking about fashion. The external pressures from family and friends and society, you know, you should do this and you should be this, et cetera. When you talk about moving, and that's such a big move from Australia to the US, just so the audience understands, your husband's American. So because perhaps you also were a transnational to Australia, did you feel less of the bonds? We were Australian, obviously, but children of immigrants. Yeah, The idea that immigration and moving to another country 
is actually really scary for the average person. But if it's been modeled for you, you kind of feel like, oh yeah, I can do that. (laughs) And it really was that way for me. I mean, it was sad because my mother was still, you know, and my two sisters were still in Australia. I felt like I can do this, even though it's a real bummer to be away from them. Again, it goes back to being a child of immigrants and having that can-do mindset that, yes, you're picking up and you're going halfway across the world, but it'll be okay. So I just I had this, whether, you know, rightfully so or not, I just had this kind of confidence about it, but there was obviously a sadness to be away from family. So once you came to the U.S., how did you start the process of forging a path in this new profession of fashion? It started when I was still in Sydney. And just a lot of soul searching kind of gave me the courage to apply to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. The goal was to study fashion. That's what I was applying for. And I was still a lawyer at the time, but I put together a portfolio and all the garments I designed and sewn and crossed my fingers. I'd get an interview and got into the AAS degree, which is an accelerated one-year degree and worked on 7th Avenue for a couple of years. And then At that time, my husband got recruited out west. So after working on 7th Avenue, we moved to California. I worked for the big corporates. And so I scored a position at The Gap. And at the time in the early 90s, The Gap was doing very exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. And then after six and a half years with The Gap, I was with Levi Strauss and Company. And then I took some time off to have our second child. And then I started my own children's line. So I had that for at least... 14 years, and now I have a women's capsule collection. It certainly is a process, and you do have to start from scratch. You have to find new friends. You have to be resilient. And there's a lot of loneliness involved, obviously. Then you find your tribe, you know, and it just goes from there. I feel like making that change from being a lawyer to pursuing fashion design had a huge impact on me philosophically, not just career wise. It reinforced this idea for me that the arts are really important and that they're completely unappreciated, underappreciated as a bona fide career. Again, it's like breaking free of internalized and entrenched beliefs that mm. success means a certain thing, right? Pursuing a secure career path. And I was able to defy that because I did pursue my dream of studying fashion design, worked in the fashion industry, started my own line and my own brand. And I was okay. You know, I was making some money and I was content and, and happy doing what I love. You know, certainly applied to like life in general and being a happy adult, but also applied to parenting. Even as an adult, I would say the same thing as uh, to a girlfriend who was trying to figure out what her second chapter is going to be, right? After being a mum for 20 years. You need to be doing something you love. So this is going to sound kind of loaded, but do you think that it was easy for you to take such a leap because you had your husband, even if your family was questioning your decision, that you had this incredible support? Because I've met other women who I think had aspirations at one point or another in their lives and perhaps didn't feel that sense of support and never took the leap? I definitely think that I was in a 
fortunate position and it's certainly privileged that it's not lost on me that if things didn't go well that I you know my husband could support me but I do feel like if you're not doing something that you love that you can try to do something on the side until it becomes something mm-hmm. and so obviously the practical you know that we have pragmatic needs and obviously if you're not in a position to just pursue your dreams and quit everything and just like go in a completely different direction that you do it as a side thing first and test it out see if it truly is something that you love because it may not be um and so, that's a safe way to do it and so during that process of taking the leap did you ever have moments where you might have questioned the decision to leave your law career and embark on this incredibly different and per- and also challenging journey Actually, no, I didn't. I mean, I didn't look back because the thing is with um, certainly when you have your own business, the business acumen that I gleaned from having a law background, a, a legal education, held me in good stead when I was, you know, an entrepreneur and I am an entrepreneur still, but like when as a young entrepreneur trying to figure things out and not being super familiar with the fashion industry, for example, just all the stuff that I had been exposed to as a a law student and as a young lawyer just didn't go to waste. Just reading contracts or dealing with shady business people and making sure that you dotted your I's and crossed the T's, you know, all of that thoroughness, I think, really helped me. I would say that it became part of my MO. It wasn't something that I was completely separate and that I left behind it was became part of who I was as a businesswoman. And the only reason I ask is that law is something that's very linear and has seeking justice and seeking what's right. And fashion is so completely opposite. I was just curious to see if there was some part of your background or family history that might have sort of created that initial spark for you to think about that as a possibility in your life. I would say just speaking about arts generally, that um, you talk about seeking justice. I think that in this day and age, being an artist is being an activist for social change. Certainly what my daughter is doing in her art, it's about being a questioner and being a critic. And so your questioning and your criticisms are your work. And so if you're in conflict with the status quo, if you're questioning, then using your voice is a political choice. As the parent of artists, I want to encourage risk and innovation. And if they're vaguely interested in social justice, well, take your art in that direction too. Certainly being a little social justice warrior, I just completely am all over that. And as watching my kids and encouraging activism, encouraging them to embrace their own identity, I think is so important. Were you also very activist in the fashion industry when you were working? I mean, maybe not so much Gap, but there is a lot of the fashion industry that can be incredibly elitist and also creates this false narrative about beauty and and setting beauty standards and setting body image standards. Were there moments in your own career in that industry where you 
found yourself having to kind of fight some battles? Um, actually, no. But certainly as a fashion designer now, I'm all about sustainability. And I really feel there's a huge issue in the industry relating to the big brands getting on board and becoming more aware of the impact on climate change. Oh, yeah. Waste. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. So the fashion industry is the biggest offender in terms of pollution after the oil industry. There is just so much that needs to be done, but it's almost like the individual consumer is the person, is are the kids especially, who are making change, repurposing, recycling, consuming vintage, passing on. Consuming that, less, perhaps, right? Exactly. Would be the ideal. That's where a lot of the change is happening. And I think that's super exciting. But definitely Levi Strauss and Company were one of the first um, big brands to be aware of how they affect developing nations in their manufacturing. And so we were, at that time, we were one of the few companies that cared about working conditions and exploitative labor. There was a whole Bible that we had to adhere to. So when I traveled to check on quality assurance and and how production was going on certain lines, it would be also about checking out to make sure that they were adhering to standards. So that was definitely something that we did at Levi's, which kind of opened my mind and my eyes to what we needed to be looking for. That was back in the 90s. And so they were very, very early and prescient in their care about labor conditions and child labor, everything. And that was most definitely an education for me. Right. Because now most, we assume most, especially fast fashion is produced, mass produced in places like China and Vietnam, where the working conditions are abysmal at best, and they don't have child labor law practices or anything as such. So I understand what you mean by kids and sort of changing the perspective of what fashion should be doing from a social conscious aspect. But do you think that some of the companies could be doing something a little bit more than allowing just the consumer to be the driving force behind making- oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yolanda. This is like, this is overdue. And I am all about banning fast fashion. Fast fashion is so terrible. There is something wrong when a garment, whether it be a t-shirt or a dress, costs the same as a sandwich. It teaches our young people that fashion is something to be thrown away, to be worn once and then sent to a the trash bin. And worse, it's teaching our children and our youth and also reinforcing in adults that fashion is not to be savored and appreciated and loved, carried down through generation. It's really something that we need to cherish you know, something that is like, for example, an Armani coat that I've had for 20 years, you know, that's something I'm going to give my daughter. And that's how we should be looking. If we are going to consume at all, it should be quality and then try to reduce consumption, just generally speaking. Ban fast fashion in your wardrobe. If you do have it in your wardrobe, 
okay, continue to wear it, but try not to go to H&M and Zara and, you know, all those big brands that um, exploit labor as well as reduce fashion to, you know, a throwaway item when it really shouldn't be. But that also creates a different dilemma, which is that the people who can afford fast fashion are probably the ones who have less access to better quality things in general. That's true. And to me, it's the same as, you know, in certain parts of New York City, you'll find what is called food desert. There yeah. are no Whole Foods. There are no farmer's markets on the weekends. The only places that you can see people able to shop at are not places that you and I would probably shop at ever, right? And so it's this mm-hmm. idea of, in some ways, placing the onus on the consumer if the consumer that they're targeting are the people who don't have a voice and don't have a choice. So how do we rectify that? I think the big brands need to step up and help have within their stores, perhaps, or online methods by which clothes can be recycled and repurposed. And the idea that trends don't matter. You know, for decades, we've been taught that designed obsolescence is the way to go, that when a new iPhone comes out, we need to buy the latest one. If new colors come out and new silhouettes come out, then we have to buy the latest collection. And those trends get filtered down to all the brands at every level of fashion. And so we need to start thinking that trends are not as important, clothes are important. And so it's not about being on trend. It's about just wearing what you love and being unique and being okay with that. And I think increasingly you see that with kids using Depop and Real Real and the brands where you're just buying, recycling, repurposed, Goodwill. I mean, I love going to Goodwill and finding Brooks Brothers shirts and amazing things for $8, you know, where you can make something your own. I think it's so interesting because what you're saying for me raises a lot of questions about the difference between want and need. So if we're talking about clothes, you basically only need a pair of slacks and a shirt. And you probably maybe need four or five. And then obviously things that are temperature appropriate. And then anything beyond that is just desire and want. And fashion is about, it is about aspiration. I mean, that is kind of what fashion brands are always selling. How can that cultural shift occur if like the industry in its aesthetic purpose and what its intention is, is selling aspiration that you're basically saying, well, we should do less. We should be satisfied with just having that T-shirt and jeans and only that. Yeah, I think that that's why the idea of a capsule wardrobe is really great. Like having a couple of T-shirts, a couple of great jackets, a couple of pairs of pants, leggings great white shirt, a great darker shirt, um, a good overcoat is actually enough. And then incorporating things that are vintage and things that are old and maybe a few new items, maybe new shoes if you need them. This idea of borrowing and sharing is also a really neat idea. I was just telling my sister about a story that I'd read about where three Japanese girls who are similar sizes decided that they were going to together buy a designer dress and share it. So one day on a Monday, one of them would wear it. And then uh, 
another girl would wear it, you know, once it got dry cleaned to another event or to work. And so sharing, the sharing economy, I think is really important. The change in mindset that you talk about, that's going to take a decade or plus. It's going to take a while. And it's going to take people like Stella McCartney, big designers who are really on board with sustainable production and anti-cruelty fibers, incorporating fabrications that are not harmful to the environment. That type of thinking is going to take more of the Stella McCartney's and all of us to just basically say, we just need less. We need to pass on. We need to recycle and share with our sisters. But that goes against the philosophy of what fashion is about, It totally does. The fashion is about aspiration again. And so that completely goes against, you know, sort of the ethos of the industry as a whole. It's completely contradictory. And actually, as a fashion designer myself, the compulsion in the past was for me to say, buy my clothes, my, buy my designs. Right now, I'm in a personal dilemma because I'm thinking, don't buy, don't buy. Right. Just buy vintage or share with friends and borrow if you need something specific, you know, but don't consume, reduce your consumption. And that's kind of like where I find myself right now. And then the industry is going through cyclical changes as well. You see all of the athleisure wear companies and even high-end designers doing athleisure wear. I've never mm-hmm. seen so many designers designing sneakers. And it has created a kind of a cascading financial effect on fashion industry as a whole. What trends do you foresee in the next five years? Is this going to be it? Meaning nobody's really going to be going out and buying a Carolina Herrera gown, really. You know, that's going to become more like the French little houses where they used to do high fashion, haute mm-hmm. couture. What do you see as a projection in five years of how the industry is going to respond to these changes? As I said, there will always be a place for good quality stuff that lasts for years and years and years. I wonder and predict that there's going to be a return to very special bespoke clothing and couture, but designed to last a very long time. I believe that there will be a market for that. And then coupled with this new mentality, I hope that arrives eventually within the next five years, decade, where people are thinking most definitely about consuming less, but consuming quality, and then recycling, passing on, repurposing if you have to, if there's something fabulous in that you get your hands on or that's passed on to you, but it needs to be tweaked, like the armhole is too big or the hem is too long, you know, and so you're adjusting accordingly. But it's good quality stuff that lasts a long time. With that said, and that's your hopeful projection for the Mm -hmm. industry as a whole, how do you see Wati Grossman, the designer, how do you see yourself in five years time and knowing all of this and having sort of absorbed your own ideas about all this? I hope that, um, you know, because I've been, uh, during the pandemic, I've been making a ton of masks. Just basically, I decided that there was a need 
And then I started sewing immediately. And I couldn't go out of the house, right? At the very beginning of March of lockdown 2020, I just grabbed things from storage from the garage. And I had like stacks of Liberty of London fabric and some vintage fabric. And I pulled all of that out. And that's what I was sewing with. And so by necessity, I found myself being terribly sustainable, which was awesome. And so then there was that, there was a need. And I do feel, and I would love somehow going forward, once I stop having to make masks, is to incorporate that idea of reuse and recycled fabric, somehow incorporating that into my future designs. So it's definitely part of who I am now and this idea of advocating for recycling and utilizing what we have as opposed to buying something that's brand new. Can you give us an example how you envision that? I'm personally curious. So does that mean if I came to you with, you know, an old Jill Sander dress and Uh like this no longer works for me? Like, is it the idea that you could then take that Jill Sander dress that I brought to you and do something new for me with it? Possibly. Yes. We talk about what you love about the garment most and then try to preserve that. And then obviously how it hangs on the body, preserving that. And let's say it's got an amazing neckline or it's got a beautiful armhole that has a very slimming effect and a very flattering effect. And obviously you want to preserve the best of it, Mm -hmm. the essence of the garment, of what the designer intended to be enjoyed by the consumer and somehow preserve that, but update it maybe and tweak it in a way that could be just delightful. You know, you want, you're looking for joy and being sustainable. And so possibly that would be the way that I would incorporate Um, my eye and my skills going forward into the future. So do you still have your capsule collection that you're selling? I do, but you know, some of it was manufactured domestically, but some was overseas. And so again, we have to look at the carbon footprint, right? And about what I'm paying to have things shipped from overseas. And that's kind of a dilemma, really, because ideally you want to be manufacturing close to home. And so I've explored working with seamstresses locally and then also sewing myself too. So it's very low tech and it's the opposite of scaling. Mm -hmm. It's just making things about the hand, the personal touch, the personal eye, as opposed to making a gazillion of one thing. which is what fashion design was in the 90s and decades after that until recently, where we've really become more mindful about how we consume. We're much more considered. Well, I hope that we are, that we're becoming that way and that what you add to your wardrobe is something that you truly love and that it's not something that you just want because it's a great color or you quite like the way that the the jacket hangs on you, but you know, you'll probably be passing it on or throwing it away at some point, you know, it's not that thinking at all. And so I'm hoping that that shift happens. So you have no interest in scaling or bringing a line to a bigger scale. Don't believe that that is really the way that we're headed. Mm. I really don't. I feel like Depop 
this is just me speaking personally. And it's just sacrilege, actually, to be honest. It's not the way a fashion designer should be thinking and talking. But I really feel like we need to be scaling back. We need to be consuming less. We need to be super mindful. We need to be sharing amongst ourselves, amongst our girlfriends, and doing the Marie Kondo and cleaning out our closets. And if it doesn't spark joy, then we shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be part of our lives. Don't you know? get me started on Marie Kondo. It's making us take stock. Yeah. It's a reckoning in a way. It's like, okay, I just have too much junk and I need to get rid of it. And I need to pass it on to someone who needs it or who would love it or enjoy it. We don't need that much. At the end of the day, the fashion industry is guilty of making us want to consume more and more and more. That's the ethos of the industry. It's so terrible. It really is. We need to reject it. We can enjoy some things and consume, but in a more measured way, I believe. So even though you took the sleep into doing something that you love, in, in hindsight at this point and kind of seeing the world as it is, if you could do certain things over again, would you do anything differently? No, because I think that fashion is my number one love. I love menswear. I love tailoring. I love sewing, hand sewing as well as machine sewing. It's something that I really embraced once I learned how to do the industrial sewing techniques and, and I learned how to drape and I learned how to make patterns at FIT. It totally was where I needed to be. And it led me to this idea of a mindset of monitoring consumption, you know, a mindset of how we consume and what we consume. That applies not only to the physical realm, but it's also about how we consume content, for example. As parents, as individuals, we undergo a barrage of video and of media that, you know, in some ways can be very harmful. So, you know, you know, as a writer, there's a lot of bad stuff that can be found in content that we consume. The movies, stories that get told or not told, the female characters who we, we don't get to hear about because their stories are not developed. There's, and there's so much that we need to look at with a critical eye and decide if it's something that we want or something that we don't want. Even though I'm a fashion designer, I never had fashion magazines in the house when the kids were growing up because I didn't want them, the magazines, the images found in the magazines to mess with most especially my daughter's self-esteem or her sense of self. Right? So it's about being careful about how we accept things that are thrown at us and pick and choose what it is that we want in our lives. That's and a great place to end. Because I love that image of your sort of thinking and talking about the future generation carrying on and hopefully with a different consciousness and yeah. more consciousness, perhaps. So we get to the very last question mm -hmm. and it comes from out of nowhere, but I think it always provides a really interesting context for the listeners to get a different sense of you. Mm -hmm. So if you could find one song that might describe your life or resonate with your life, what would that song be? Donna Summers, I Will Survive. I think that's, it's a great song, <laughs> but it's a great anthem for anyone and 
everyone. And I feel like for me, it was definitely this idea that no matter what you throw at me, I'm going to make the best of things. I will survive by Donna Summer. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Vati, for doing this. You're truly an inspiration. I hope to see you doing the bespoke capsule collections where we can bring you things and you can help us to reimagine, which is kind of in the theme of what this show is about. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they go ask me why I do it. I'm going to say this because we going to be the best on earth just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that could or should or would If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.